do I really have to preach this text? And if so, do I have to preach it now? And uh, you probably thought the same thing from your view, Great, grateful that it's the pastor doing this, not me. But as I've been thinking about blessed are the peacemakers, happy are the peacemakers over this last week, it's really been somewhat exhausting just thinking about how many different areas of our lives have just been absolutely immersed in chaos, division, hostility. Um, I, I'm somewhat of a young guy uh, compared to some of you, but this seems to be the most hostile era that I've, I've lived through. Um, seems in some ways unprecedented for my lifetime. And yet here we are this morning hearing Jesus preach, blessed or happy are the peacemakers. Well, if you just think about our nation over the last couple of years, uh, it seems as though uh, this, this picture that uh, was taken of this guy called the QAnon shaman has almost become like a, a kind of mascot for the nature of the divisions that we have in our nation. You know, this, this horrible event where you have uh, what was a riot turned into the death and, and injury of, of all kinds of uh, police officers and others. Seems like our whole nation has been caught up in all kinds of division and fighting, and, and this seems to be sort of the mascot for that. It's almost as though COVID-19 caused us to become locked down, and when we came out, we were just a little bit nuts. We wanted to fight. We wanted to fight about everything. Well, it's not just this. We, we have all kinds of other issues that have come to the forefront. Uh, the divisions are not just political. Uh, they're not just racial. They are those. Uh, but we also find that it's even hit evangelicalism. Uh, so I was just reading an article this last week by a guy by the name of Michael Graham who says that during this season, what he has seen is a fracturing of evangelicalism into basically six different groups. And he lists those six different groups as the neo-fundamentalist, mainstream neo-evangelical, post-evangelical, de-churched with some Jesus, de-churched and deconverted. So as we think about that, I don't want to really analyze all of these various ways that we see that we lack peace in our nation and peace in our churches. What I do want to do, though, is just take a moment and agree together that things are a little bit chaotic. And, and as we do that, I, I want to also acknowledge that as we are called to be peacemakers, we need to recognize that sometimes when we are looking to make peace, it can feel a little bit like we're a bomb specialist that's kind of trying to go in and help someone that's wearing one of those explosive vests, right? And so you want to help get them out of the, the vest and not blow up, but you also don't want to blow yourself up and others up while you're trying to make peace, right? That's the environment I believe that we live in. As a pastor, I feel that way. Personally, been a difficult season of lots of hard conversations. But it almost feels like you need the superpowers of a Marvel hero to be able to do the thing that Jesus is calling us to here. But catch this. You might wonder, would this message have been as awe-inspiring during Jesus' day? When Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he's launching his ministry, and he begins with these Beatitudes. Would this have struck his people as being something that was difficult, both the Jews and the Gentiles? Well, uh, I would say likely so. In fact, if you're looking for context, we know that during this season, when Jesus comes forth in his ministry, it's during this thing that uh, would have been known as the Pax Romana, uh, or the peace 
of Rome. It's a, a season that was launched by Augustus. In fact, sometimes it's called the Pax uh, Augustus uh, because Augustus, uh, it, he sort of led off this whole 200-year period of unprecedented peace. And, and the way that they would keep peace in Rome was through all kinds of political, uh, economic, an army kind of force. And he actually celebrated the peace that they had as being a gift of the gods because of God's, the gods' favor upon them. And what's fascinating is a lot have looked back and said that that peace that Rome described was actually a tool for kind of propaganda. In other words, it wasn't a kind of peace where people, both poor, rich, weak, and powerful, sensed that there was a true peace that they in joyed with one another, but instead there was a kind of force that said, you're going to be happy or you're going to die. Well, when Jesus shows up and he says, happy are the peacemakers, that's not the kind of peace that Jesus ushered in. No, Jesus came to usher in a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom of heaven, a kingdom where his people experienced peace from the heart, peace that began with peace with God and then trickled down into the relationships with others. In fact, he had citizens of his kingdom who would become not only those who enjoyed peace, but became ambassadors of peace, those who went out and made peace with others. Well, this morning, our big idea is this. It's that peacemakers look like Jesus, who looks just like our Father in heaven. Peacemakers look like Jesus, who looks just like our Father in heaven. See, while the Pax Romana promised peace through taking life, Jesus came and promised peace with God by giving his life, by laying it down. Now, here, here's the first thing that we're going to see this morning. That's this. Happy are the peacemakers. Happy are the peacemakers. Now, here's the inconvenient truth that we're confronted with in this text immediately as we look at it. Jesus does not say, blessed are the peaceful. Blessed are the, the comfortable. I, I kind of wish that he would say that because that makes more sense, right? Sounds true. But that's not what he says. See, here what we find is, is that Jesus actually says, blessed are the peacemakers, He's not saying here, happy are those who protect their peace at all costs. This isn't kind of an advertisement for the lifestyle of those ascetic monks who try to sort of separate themselves from others to help them be more holy. It's not like that doctrine of a number of Anabaptist churches who would say that what you need to do is be kind of a pacifist, not enter into war, but stay separate from it so that you can be more holy and please God and experience the kind of peace that Jesus calls us to. Now, I do think that there is a passive nature to peacemaking. And it's this, it's in the sense that we are striving to live at peace with all men. That means in the way that we are slow to speak. We're listening and thinking about what people say. We're not just looking to overpower them with our thoughts or our words or our rhetoric, but we really do need to seek to understand. We need to be slow to speak, which I think means not a, you know, just sort of blowing up on someone, but I think it also means we're trying to be more careful and precise with the words that we're using when we're talking to others 
so that we don't blow up people needlessly. And we're slow to, to anger. Slow to anger because those things do not bring forth the righteousness of God. But Jesus here, I think, is also calling for a peacemaking that goes beyond that. It's a kind of active peacemaking. In other words, there is a, a kind of lifestyle, an initiative that you need to take to be able to honor God and honor Christ and is calling to be a peacemaker. So what does a peacemaker do? I think it's someone who at base level is seeking reconciliation between persons who are fighting or where there are factions that exist. They're fighting for, for unity and peace and joy and harmony. You know, peacemakers, they, they don't relish fights. They're not someone who says, I'm gonna jump in here and we're gonna make you be happy and peaceful. But they also don't avoid conflict to insulate themselves from their own sense of peace and well-being. They take initiative to reconcile broken relationships. Now let me give you three handles for thinking about peacemaking this morning, and then I'll give you some, some quick applications. Uh, let me just say this, uh, this is gonna be imperfect and you need to build on this yourselves uh, in your community groups, in your quiet times, as you're thinking about what it means to be a peacemaker. But let me get us st started in thinking about this. First, peacemaking isn't our default setting. Can we just affirm that? Like, I don't know about you, but I feel like the older I get, the more I realize just how bad I am at making peace and how much harder I have to work at it. See, when Adam fell in the garden, we're told that he immediately blamed Eve, his wife, and God, right? It's, it's the woman that you gave me. In the very next chapter, we find that there's friction in the family again when Cain kills his brother Abel. See, peace, clear, peace clearly is not our manufacturer's default setting. It's not like our standard operating system, and some of us are further away from that. Fights and factions look more natural to humanity because of sin. Now, in Hebrew, they, they had this idea of peace that was shalom. And, and shalom didn't just mean that you were free from, like, external enemies and problems. But it actually also meant that you were leading a healthy and prosperous and joyful life. It's a rich word. Now, we know that peace was a big deal in Israel. And, and you can see this in a number of different ways. Uh, in fact, Jerusalem, the capital of God's place, was uh, actually a, a word that means the city of peace. And as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you'll find that they were a people who that name might have seemed somewhat ironic because they so rarely experienced peace, right? I mean, what do we always pray for whenever somebody's like, what do, what do you want if you could have anything? I don't know, peace in the Middle East? And then we kind of, kind of laugh and say, yeah, yeah that's never going to happen. Well, the reason is, is because it's so rare that we find peace in this region. It's a, a place that's known for war. King Solomon, one of the great kings of Israel's history, his name was uh, a name that meant literally peace. And through his reign, it was peaceful, but then he died and there was division. The nation couldn't even stay together. It separated into the northern and southern kingdoms. Uh, they fought for the rest of their days until eventually they were carried off into exile by other nations. And they couldn't even get carried off in exile together. They were carried off in different exiles. It was a people that were divided. But during Isaiah's day, as Judah was looking forward to uh, their being um, uh, taken away by Babylon, Isaiah saw another day when a child would be born. In Isaiah 9, we are told that that child, amongst other things, would be called the what? 
prince of peace, one greater than Solomon, who would bring about a peace unlike any peace that any people or nation had ever known. And as we look at that, we find that immediately Judah was taken into the Babylonian exile. But catch this. I believe that if you were read, to read through the Old Testament and you were to look at the people of God in the Old Testament, you, you could have found at any point many examples of the kind of fleshly peace killers that Paul speaks of in Galatians 5, 19 to 20 as he's calling out the works of the flesh. And notice these specific ones that he says are peace killers. He speaks of enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, dissensions, divisions, envy, etc. And he goes on to say, I warn you as I warned you before, catch that, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now just think about that. Fits of anger, strife, jealousy, divisions, envy. Does those, those sound somewhat familiar? Familiar culturally? Familiar politically? Maybe familiar familial in your own home? Well, that's what Rome's gods and the system of Roman peace looked like. It was worldly. These things did not need to be killed so long as people played by the rules of Rome. They didn't look for a real change from the heart. And this is what we look like when we don't unite around the gospel, around Christ, when we are not led by his spirit. It reminds me of the, the church in Corinth who Paul speaks favorably love of those who have been loved by God. And yet they were divided over all kinds of things as he's trying to bring them back together. And do you remember the kinds of things they were, they were divided over? Their favorite preachers. And by the way, some of their favorite preachers, some of them said Jesus wasn't their favorite preacher. Now, there were others who divided over communion, which was a, a meal that was supposed to show their unity. They divided over all kinds of things. They looked more like the world than they looked like the people of God. So let me just ask you a question as we begin thinking about peacemaking. Do you have peace in your life? Do you have peace? Do you have peace in your relationships? Peace with, with God? Or do you sense that there's something that's going on between you and God? Or, or, or what about your, your families? Do you feel like you have peace with your wife or your husband or your mom or your dad? Do you feel like you have peace with your coworkers and your friends? Well, maybe your answer this morning is yes, and I would love for that to be the case for all of us. But let me chase that down just a second more. How do you maintain that peace, that sense of peace that you perhaps have, for those of you who would say that they have it? Do you avoid conflict at all costs? Do you avoid talking about hard things instead of talking about the gospel. Like, I, I've got this coworker, things go spiritual. I sort of dip and bounce because, man, things just sometimes get weird after that. And it just feels so peaceful when I don't cause disruption. Now, I'm not saying there's not wisdom there that needs to be like practiced to sort of make sure you're not dishonoring your bosses and that kind of thing. But are we, in a sense, trying to have a kind of peace that is alien to the kind of peace that Jesus is calling for? Do you avoid hard conversations by insulating yourself even at home with Netflix or hobbies? 
so that you're, you're taken up, your attention is taken up in such a way that you can't have those important conversations with your spouse or with your children that need to take place. You're busy, you're preoccupied, but you're peaceful. Are you more committed to peace and quiet than peacemaking? Do you seek peace through intimidation and threats? In other words, like if you know what's good for you, you'll just be quiet. Okay, they're not bothering me anymore. Peace, just like what the Bible talks about. Not quite. See, not all peace signals a peacemaker by Jesus' standard. Now, if the answer is no, you say, I don't feel like I have peace in those areas. I want us just to consider a minute what peacemaking looks like both theologically and practically. Now, what is the role that you have in that relationship that is broken? Do you have any part? Now, let me just say this clearly. I don't think that every broken relationship is kind of a 50-50 deal. Sometimes it's more or all somebody else that's creating the situation. I also don't think that, you know, as some people say, where there's smoke, there's fire. If somebody has said that you've done something, you must have done something. But ask yourself, are there ways that you are encouraging friction and fractions rather than peace? See, fights and disagreements, I think they should really serve as an occasion where all of us stop to take note of our own hearts. In other words, in those moments, let's just assume there's something to be learned in that situation. And we need to consider our, our words, our actions, and the heart behind those words and actions, and whether or not we are really peacemakers or peacebreakers at root. Uh, I was talking to a good uh, pastor friend uh, just this last week, and um, he was sharing the story about how, you know, he, he just acknowledges that sometimes when you go to a church, he says, you take on some good things, but you also can take on some sin tendencies as well. That's kind of how community works. And uh, he had this uh, one tendency he noticed in his congregation, he didn't notice at the time, but was people talked kind of with loose tongues about one another. And he and his wife kind of fell into it, and he had a new couple join the church. And as they were hanging out one night, they were saying something about someone, and this couple said, I don't know if you should be talking about others that way. Is that, do you think that's God honoring? And this pastor, super humble, just said, you know what? You're right. I hadn't even noticed that we had fallen into that sort of uh, stream of, of talking about others, and he repented on the spot. I mean, what a great lesson for me and for others. But I think that peace killers can so subtly work their way into our lives and the way that we talk to others and the decisions we make and the way that we live. And we need community to help us make sure that we're protected against those things. You know, just to give you an example, like, you know, I come from a people where uh, sarcasm was seen as a spiritual gift. And... Uh, it, it, was, it was really um, a long time before I realized that uh, not everybody interprets the, the scriptures that way. And an, another thing that, that I really struggle with is that I really like to uh, joke around and not make things as big of a deal sometimes as they actually are. Now, that can be a really good sign of a leader, that you're not like letting things get blown out of proportion, that you're actually trusting God but from another perspective, it can show a lack of empathy and care for others. You know, I say this to say that if you're thinking about peacemaking, 
Like the thing that's so overwhelming to this, about this to me is that I recognize that I myself have trouble making peace with others. I have stuff I'm working on. You have stuff I'm guessing that you're working on, unless you're like fully done in the oven, fully sanctified, just waiting for Jesus to show up and recognize you. I'm guessing that's not the case. But in addition to that, the world outside is nuts. D do you see that? Like, I've got issues with making peace. The world outside, not peaceful. And so when Jesus comes and he says, happy are the peacemakers, I feel overwhelmed. But here's the good news. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. Not a small theological truth. Don't miss this. Hebrews 13, 20 and Romans 15, 33, both call God what? The God of peace. Jesus was prophesied as the one who would be the prince of peace. We find that the Holy Spirit has come to give us a fruit of what? Peace. It is a spiritual fruit. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are for and about peace, a kind of kingdom that is unlike this kingdom. Jesus is the one who inaugurated a covenant of peace for his people. Our king came and died for us on a cross to usher in a new kind of covenant with a new kind of community that was grounded in a kind of peace that is not from this world, that is manipulative and suppressive, but that is from heaven, one that pierces to the heart. See, Jesus is the one who died on the cross, was resurrected from the dead, and ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father forever making intercession for you and me. It is only through him that we have peace with God. I love in Ezekiel 37, we have a vision of God sending his prophet, and he puts words in his mouth and he speaks them over this valley of dry bones. You remember that, that great and glorious text about the bones coming to life and creating an exceedingly great army where only death had been. And then he places his spirit within them. And in Ezekiel 37, 26, he makes this promise about this future that has come. He says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. It will not die with Solomon. It will go on forever. I believe Wellam and Gentry are helpful in Kingdom Through Covenant. When they say that this is speaking of the same thing that Jeremiah saw, a day when there would be a new covenant, which promises new hearts. It would be an eternal covenant and a kind of covenant that would be a covenant of peace. See, Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. He's the one who laid down his life as a substitution for you and me. We who had nothing but wrath and division from God so that we might be brought near to him. He died in our place on the cross for rebels filled with enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, dissensions, divisions, envy, pride, and the list goes on. He died for us. He didn't die for beautiful, peaceful, happy people. He died for people who hated God. See, Jesus took the eternal just wrath of God that we deserved and gave us this covenant of eternal peace instead. He didn't come to make peace by taking life, but by giving his life that we might have peace with God. In fact, 
Paul is thinking about this reality. In Ephesians chapter 2, and he says, it is not just that Jesus has handed us peace. No, he says, Jesus is our peace. I love what he says there in verses 13 to 18. You can look there in Ephesians 2, 13 to 18. A glorious text in all of Scripture. And here's what he says. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now there's a bunch here, but let me just quickly unpack realities about peace that we find in this text. For one, Jesus himself is our peace. Our peace is a person who forever lives to intercede for us, to make us right with God, to make us reconciled to God. See, Jesus is with you for your peace, and you have peace with God. Do you catch that? Peace is not something that's been handed off to you. Peace is something that you are united with in Christ by faith. Second, both those far from God and near to God here, the Jews and Gentiles, did not have peace with God. Do you catch that? But Jesus didn't come for those people that didn't have peace and to acknowledge those who already had peace. He said, nobody had peace. They all needed Jesus. See, peace with God required the same peace from God for every human That's a miracle that cannot be attributed to human effort. It was all of God's grace and mercy that we have this peace. Third, the blood of Christ brought Ephesian Christians peace with God and one another. Did you notice that in the conversation? Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, I'm confused. Like he's talking about Jesus coming and dying to reconcile us to God, but then he's talking about this whole like, horizontal relationship that's been changed by the power of the cross. And what he's saying is, is that if you've been reconciled to the head, Jesus Christ, then you've been reconciled to the body, those saints who have been purchased by his blood. There are ways in which the reality that we have been reconciled to God means that we can be reconciled with even our enemies. The Jews saw Gentiles as unclean, enmity. They were enmity at war with one another. And he says, I have brought them together. There is hope now, I believe, getting a little ahead of myself, but for marriages that feel hopeless because Jesus has died to bring us close to God. Moving on, fourth, Jesus preached peace through his sacrifice. Did you notice that? It says that Jesus preached this peace. Jesus is the only way to true and lasting peace. And the word will divide those who believe from those who don't. But it is a message that centers on the fact that peace is real and available in Christ. And fifth, the same Holy Spirit gives all Christians access to the Father. I mean, here's what all of this means. The triune God sent Jesus to die that Ephesian Christians could have peace with God and one another. 
It's a new world that is beginning here, a new creation that is breaking out. I think we could argue that even as we despair the brokenness all around us, this text tells us that God is even more for our peace than we are. Isn't that encouraging? The creator of the universe, the redeemer of the lost. You're thinking you're alone that it's impossible to find peace with God and others. And he says, no, listen to Ephesians 2. I'm more for it than you are. Here's the encouraging thing for us as Trinity Bible Church on 35th Avenue, Peoria. This is true for Ephesus. This is true for us. This is true for Trinity Bible Church. Things might be nuts out there. You might feel like things are nuts in here. But brothers and sisters, isn't Jesus still our peace? Isn't this still true today? Well, let me just encourage you, just in case somebody's asleep right now. This is going to be a little cheesy, but I'm just asking you to do it to be encouraging. Could you just tell your neighbor, Jesus is our peace, and I want peace for you too? Jesus is our peace, and I want peace for you too. Y'all can use that later this week, too. But there's another thing that we see here, and that's that peace partakers make the best peacemakers. Peace partakers make the best peacemakers. Kind of rhymed, kind of pithy, but true. Like those who have experienced the peace of God are those who I believe are best equipped to show and make peace with others. See, Jesus calls us actually to make peace with others. So who wants to be the firefighter who runs into the fire and save others. I think I do in my mind. I'm not so sure if the event broke out, if I would actually actually want to do that. Um, I remember one time, uh, Jack, my youngest son, was going into a Dickies and he accidentally cut his toe. And I was just, and it was bleeding everywhere and I was just like staring and, and numb. Here comes in my friend Scott, picks him up, starts taking care of them, says you need to go to the children's hospital, go there immediately, takes care of the situation. And I'm like, wait, what? I think in my imagination, I just think of like, man, I'm just gonna be, if there's something hard, I wanna jump in and do it. But who really wants to be the bomb specialist who attempts to disarm that explosive vest? Like some of us are willing to be trained. Most of us hope that we would never have to use that training. And yet, This is something that Jesus says is just fundamental to what it means to be a Christian, that you are a peacemaker, that you are going to grow in that regard. And peacemaking requires what I believe is a spirit-led, brazen humility. It requires the Holy Spirit to do what it is that Jesus is calling us to do, that comes by faith in Christ. I think it calls us to be brazen or brave. We need to trust God's word and his spirit to propel us into brave, costly Peacemaking, having hard conversations that make us uncomfortable, give us anxiety, and keep us up at night. True confession, I have many mornings that I've woken up feeling accused by others in my dreams that haven't really accused me, simply because I am trying to care for others and and trying to do it better and feeling like completely incapable. But that is what we are called to do. I'm not talking about, when I talk about brave, uh, this Yiddish word chutzpah, you know what I'm talking about? Somebody does something brave or maybe a little dumb, and you say, wow, you've got real chutzpah. That word is is actually a word that comes from this idea of someone who is 
indignant, who has a kind of indignant lack of dignity or lack of dignity, self-confidence. The Apostle John actually called out a man who was just like this, Diotrephes, in 3 John 9. And he says that because he put himself first, it led him to the rejection of the Bible, to of apostolic authority, and to causing divisions. In other words, he was brave, he was bold, he was loud. He, he was the one who said, I know truth, that's not truth, even to the apostles' authority. And it led not to unity and peace, but divisions and fighting. See, everybody seems brave in this way in the world today. Indignant, they draw lines in the sand without listening carefully to others to understand them. Yet we don't seem in our culture to be quick to listen and slow to speak. We are quick to divide and to question motives without listening. See, peacemaking takes more strength than fighting. That's been my experience in life. You know, fighting, you go to the gym. If you're Conor McGregor, it ends in eight seconds. It used to be him, now it's, you know, it used to be others, now it's him. Quick fight, it's over, it's done. Peacemaking is long. It's long conversations. It's patience. It's caring for one another. It's understanding one another. It takes humility. It's not just brave, it's humble. We need to be more like doves than vultures, more like lambs than lions in peacemaking. See, Jesus was oppressed and afflicted to bring us peace, and yet we are told in Isaiah 53, he opened not his mouth. There was a, a kind of strength that he showed in that humility. Uh, I was reading through Thomas Watson this week, and he, he spoke about this passage, and he said, you know, in Tertullian's day, it was said, see how Christians love one another. But Thomas Watson said in his day, it could be said, see how Christians snarl at one another like ferocious beasts. Jesus modeled this in that he was stricken and afflicted, yet opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. I think the other Beatitudes are actually instructive here about what this humility looks like and where it comes from. Uh, the best peacemakers are those who are poor in spirit, not proud. Those who mourn, who are meek, who are desperate for righteousness, merciful, and pure in heart. Good place to start if, if you feel you're failing in peacemaking. And as Thomas Watson goes on to say, before we become promoters of peace, we must become lovers of peace. Do you love peace? Not just the idea of peace, but peace is an, an attribute and perfection of God. We need to love it. We need to make our hearts love peace, ask it to love peace. So how do we become better peacemakers? I believe some lines need to be drawn bravely, and our speech should always display humility. But we need to understand that peacemaking isn't an optional amenity for Christianity. Peacemakers are in a good place. They are flourishing with regard to the kingdom of heaven. So here are six thoughts about peacemaking. Six thoughts. First, peacemakers pray. Peacemakers pray. You know, when you look at struggles with God, like our sins, or with our families, or friends, or spouses, or even concerns we have about politics or what's going on internationally with Afghanistan, that should propel us to pray to God for peace. That's kind of step one. Now, why do I say that? 
Well, because if you were just looking at the world and just listening to the world, it can feel like peace is impossible. And so what we need is kind of like an ostrich to take our head out of the sand and look up to God. There's an example of this in Philippians 4, 6 to 7, where Paul is speaking to these Philippian Christians. And he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and catch this promise. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. Did you catch that? There is a kind of peace that here Paul is speaking of that transcends human understanding. Things look chaotic. It looks impossible. Is there hope? Pray. You will get a transcendent hope from God that peace really is possible. Now, God might not change your circumstances. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed that God would change my circumstances, and he did a lot more heart change than circumstance change. But he will give us a transcendent peace that guards our hearts in those circumstances. And where else do we go for peace? And Galatians 5 tells us that peace is a fruit of the Spirit. There's nowhere to go except to God. So pray for power to be a peacemaker and not blow stuff up due to your fleshly tendencies. That's my, my prayer often. Jesus, help me not blow anything up. Help me to bring more construction than destruction. Second, peacemaking is broad in application. In other words, when Jesus says you need to be a peacemaker, he's not just saying, just be a peacemaker with easy people, with your family, not that they're the same category, and with other Christians in your local church. No, I think Paul picks up on this kind of thing in Romans 12, 18 to 21, about how broad the application of peacemaking is. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, what's fascinating here is you, you see a number of things as he goes on down to verse 21 about the nature of peacemaking. First, did you notice that he says, if possible, and so far as it depends? I'm just glad he added that. You know, like that, that, that you, you understand that you can give yourself to peace with others, but you are not able to restore every relationship this side of Jesus coming back. So if possible, so far as it depends on you, seek to make peace with all men. You know, you might forgive someone for a great wrong and never experience the fullness of reconciliation until Jesus returns. Or another person might simply refuse to seek peace. Uh, I take situations like these to be some of the saddest in my life, where you really are engaged in trying to seek peace, and the other person just walks away. Or second, leaving peaceably with all implies that this is true in all context. In other words, peace should be the rule in every sphere, right? So, so as a citizen, we're not looking to be disruptive. Now, that's complicated. You need to think through that. I mean, our country was kind of started by a disruption, but it's another conversation for another day. We should seek to have peace with our friends, with our spouses, with our children, parents, coworkers, church members, pickleball teammates, the guy that calls you and says that, you know, he's upcharging you on something that you didn't want in the first place. Like we're trying to seek peace in all of our relationships as much as dependent on us. 
Uh, Not only that, we find that Paul is saying in Romans 12 that peacemaking means you will need to trust God when you are wronged. He goes on to talk about the fact that we need to trust God as our avenger. Not every wrong this side of heaven is going to be righted until Jesus comes back. Your dignity might take a hit that will not be righted until Jesus gets back. You ever been in that place? Man, I just... I feel like my dignity's taking a hit that needs to be righted right now, and I'm willing to like shed blood for it. And Paul says that's not always going to happen. There's some who have lost reputations that will not be restored, as one author says, until Jesus returns, and then they will be raised up. And also, did you catch forth that Paul goes on to say that peaceable living means doing good, even to those who are evil? I mean, the text ends in, in verse 21, talking about doing good to those who have done evil to you. Now, that's another, like, gear that I struggle to get into, you know? Like, it's one thing to say, I forgive you, but you're kind of not around me, and I'm not around you, and I'm just going to trust that Jesus is going to come back and fix this. It's another thing to say that my posture should be to be a blessing to you, even despite what's happened. Now, that, too, is complicated. I I don't think this is saying that this looks the same for, say, someone who's been abused, that your job is to go out and start doing good for your abuser. I'm not, I don't think that's what that's saying. But I think what it's saying is that as much as you can do good to those who have done wrong to you. See, peacemaking requires a brazen humility and supernatural spirit, empowered strength. I mean, doing good to your, the person who's wronged you is not lex talionis. It's not an eye for an eye. That's something more that requires otherworldly power that is only found in the Holy Spirit. Third, peacemakers evidence fruits of the Spirit in increasing measure. Now, we need to make peace, not war. And we need to mature in our peacemaking. In fact, I think the more that you seek to make peace with others, having those difficult conversations, praying, seeking counsel, the better that you will be equipped to actually make peace. But let me encourage you to do this. Don't add fuel to the fire of division. You know what I'm talking about? Like poking with words in such ways it can like escalate situations, fighting over things that are not of primary importance. Kind of reminds me of of my dad sometimes. Some of us are good at this. If we're good with our words, we can like cause trouble joking and the next thing you know, like everybody's angry. It reminds me of my dad. One time um, I was watching this scene that was almost like slow motion. He had this big can that he was burning leaves in and it was on fire and wasn't fast enough. So he took a, a, a cup full of gasoline. He just walks over and I probably should have said something, but I was just like, I wonder how this is going to turn out. And he threw it on the fire and like this, the fire pops out and he barely gets away, only losing his eyebrows and his eyelashes and some of his arm hair. I was like, you know, you probably shouldn't throw gas on a fire. If people are tense and hot, you don't need to necessarily say everything you're thinking in that moment, probably. You probably should take a a second and think. The reason I say that is, is because I think that right now it feels like we live in a culture where Facebook And Twitter has been turned into platforms to have public debates and to say the angriest things that we can say and say the most polarizing things that we can say. And the more polarizing things we say, the more likes and hits and shares we get. 
And that's not Christian. Like, that's not the place to have these sensitive discussions and care for people's hearts. I would say the more sensitive the the conversation, the more important, like if it's doctrinal division, the more that you should have more of your senses involved, like seeing people eyeball to eyeball, that's a great mechanism to protect you from saying dumb stuff. You alone at night, late, with a computer screen and nobody around, not a good way to make peace with others. There was one pastor I was reading about that likened our age to Samson's foxtails, which were united and tied together only to set the Philistines' corn on fire. And it seems like those are the kinds of unities that we see today. Unities to destroy rather than build up. It makes me sad. I remember two decades ago when I was in seminary when it seemed like everybody in the evangelical world was coming together for the gospel. Today it seems like everybody's trying to build a platform on fires and tearing people down. But catch this. I believe the more that you seek to make peace, the more that you will grow in this fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Use it, grow in it, strengthen it. We seek to bring peace, but we also don't seek to add fuel to it. We want to watch our speech. We want to be careful about what we say on social media. Fourth, peacemaking at least means evangelism. Now, Jesus came to reconcile men and women, boys and girls, to God. And here's what that means. I should be more concerned that my kids have peace with God than that they disrupt my peace and quiet. Does that make sense? Like, we're not talking about, like, peace and quiet, the primary goal. My kids, I might need to disrupt, like, my life to go spend time with them having fun and sharing the gospel. And that might require some energy that I don't feel like I have. But that's what I think it looks like to be a peacemaker pointing them towards Jesus. I think the same is true when I'm talking with uh, somebody uh, about a bill at a restaurant or somewhere else that I think is unfair. Do I really want to throw away my, my testimony, my witness to the peace of the gospel by fighting over 10 bucks, 100 bucks? Well, let me just say this. What's your price? What's your price to ruin your witness? I would say that it, there is no money that's not worth it. I'm not saying that's not complicated, right? Like, let me just be clear. That can get super complicated, But that category of, like, I need to make sure that as much as it possible with me that I am promoting peace with all men. Fifth, peacemaking means love Jesus most. Matthew 10, 34 to 39, you might be thinking, like, well, maybe Jesus means peace at all cost. But in Matthew 10, 34 to 39, he says this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Wait a minute, you're the ultimate peacemaker. You called us to be peacemakers. He says, I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So don't miss it here. Seeking To be a peacemaker means that Jesus says you will lose relationships. Some will disdain you for seeking to love Christ. Not everyone is reconciled to God, and not everyone will be reconciled to you uh, or by you to others. So sometimes you will forgive people, but not experience the fullness of that reconciliation that you long for. It requires patience. And peacemaking means discomfort. 
Another example of this is in Matthew 18. Even in the church, we find that there are times when there's not peace amongst the people of God. And in Matthew 18, Jesus says, look, in the church, if there is someone who has an issue, then that person needs to take it to the person that they believe has offended them. Alone, in private. Talk about it. And he goes on to say, if that doesn't work, bring some witnesses. If there are no witnesses, then, you know, that's a problem. We can talk about that later. But if that doesn't work, you take it to the church, and eventually you cut them off as a church because that is someone who is living in unrepentant sin. Now, why do you do that? It's because you're saying, I don't think you understand the peace of God that's found in Jesus Christ. You need to be, an un, you need to be a repentant sinner who trusts God and his son Christ and is repentant of sin and loves God more than his sin. Six, peacemaking does not compromise the truth. Now, some of you are like, man, you should have started there, right? Like, you, you begin with peacemaking does not compromise on the truth because we will die for the truth. And I think that is completely true. And yet at the same time, that's complicated. For one, are all truths the same? I don't think all truths are necessarily worth dying over. So for instance, if I'm in a country where they say professing faith by Jesus is the only way to salvation, and that means that we're going to take your life, then I cannot denounce Christ. But if someone were to come to me and say, eschatologically, Is Jesus going to be here literally for a thousand-year reign? And if so, can you show me the particulars of, do you believe in a tribulation and what that looks like? Would you die for that? I'm like, no, I have intellectual curiosity about that, right? If my life is on the line, it's not the same thing. If my child's life is on the line. And when we think about the nature of the truth, where are people in the process with that truth? Are they working through the truth? Is there space for you to help them? You know, I hope that we're a church where we can be patient and patiently work with people through difficult doctrines so that they can grow in understanding who God is and grow in looking more like him. So we need to be able to see, when we think about the nature of the truth, that every biblical truth does not carry the same weight, that not every wrong is worth chasing down. We need to forbear with one another. I don't want to be a a sort of Whack of mole church. Like, did you hear what they said doctrinally? You fix that right now. And you and you, I don't want to be that place or that people. And we also don't want to cause people to act against their consciences. And this is a point that I don't see talked about a lot in the church that I think is so important. The, the kind of peace that we're seeing breaking out is not like the Roman peace where we say, you better be quiet if you know what's good for you. That's not a way for pastors to treat their people. That's not a way for husbands to treat their wives. You know, we are humans that have been created in the image of God. We bear the Holy Spirit. We've been sealed with him. Uh, We are called to obey Christ, and we are called to have a good conscience. And what that means is, is that we need to educate our consciences We need to inform our consciences. We need to speak truth to our consciences and make sure we are making decisions and feel good about those decisions as to what we understand from the word of God. But we are not looking as pastors 
to, uh, to, to suppress people on non-essential things. And I'm not even saying these non-essential things aren't important things. But we want to make sure that we're a place where people are able to have free consciences, to mature in their consciences, and that we're patient as we all grow together and our understanding to understand right and wrong, what's good and best according to God's word. Second, my second point, my shortest one, should be the longest, but it's this, because they shall be called sons of God. Think about that. Is peacemaking important to you? Do you want to be a son, a daughter of God? Peacemakers are sons of God. So you, you want to be a peacemaker because of this. You are a child of God, not an enemy. I mean, this makes sense that we would be called sons of God because we are peacemakers. Think about it. We just talked about how Hebrews 13, 20 calls God the God of peace. And we, told, we were told that Jesus is the Prince of Peace from the city of peace. And peace is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, this is why the 19th century Baptist preacher John Broadus said this. He said, there is no more godlike work than peacemaking. If you were to look like God and God's kids look like him, then you're going to be a peacemaker. God's kids, they look like him. They carry his traits, his perfections. Now, you might ask, when shall we become sons of God? Well, all of, all of our spiritual birth certificates say that we are children of the, the prince of this world, not the prince of peace left to ourselves. We are in Adam before we are in Christ. Uh, Jesus says this to the Pharisees in John 8, It's there that he says that their father is the devil and their will is to do his will, which is murder and not stand for the truth. That's our default. But Jesus is God's true son, and by faith we become adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. I love how Romans 8.14 says this. Paul explains, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So by faith, we are sons and daughters of the living God and heirs of all the promises that he gives to his kids. So later, Jesus is going to teach his kids to pray. He does this in Matthew 6. He says, pray this way. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that means exercising this kind of godlike peace. Now, by faith, we are sons and daughters of the living God. And I love what J.I. Packer has to say about this reality that we are adopted sons and daughters of God. As he is looking at the Bible and knowing God, one of the most read, well-read uh, books in Christian history, he says this about adoption. He explains that justification is the primary and fundamental blessing, but adoption is the highest blessing. Does that make sense? You, you don't get to adoption without justification, but he says at the end of the day, if we want to talk about what's marvelous, it's the fact that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. And this is what he says. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. You know, we're not just inmates who have been told that we are now free, free to go about our business. No, we are not simply justified. We are adopted. He says this is higher than justification. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. That relationship is one in which God is for you and he is for me. It's a relationship in which 
Nothing seen or unseen can separate us from the love of God. It is a relationship that is eternal, that promises us life everlasting, that has given us an inheritance that means that you and me, we will never die. We will live with him joyfully, peacefully forever. A kind of peace that this world can't even imagine or dream of. In fact, there's a, a beautiful image of this peace that Isaiah 116 6-9 gives us. And this is what he says in closing. He says, on that day, the wolf shall lie with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together and the little child shall lead them. The, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Can you imagine a day when you can leave your child to be babysat by a bear and where you can trust your kid to play fetch with a snake? There's a day that's coming where there's a, a kind of peace unlike anything that we have ever experienced. No divisions, no fights, and that's the peace that we long for. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, we come before you as uh, your children in Christ. And Father, we pray that you would help to make us peacemakers. We confess that we don't make peace as we should. Sometimes it seems as though we, we make more fights than, than peace. And so, Lord, we just ask that your spirit would fall on us, that you would help us to be a people who reflect your character of being a, a peaceful God. Father, we also pray for those who are here that are not sons of God, who have not put their faith in Jesus, who uh, do not have peace and have no hope of peace. Father, we pray that they would see today that Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker, that he has come for them to give them new life and hope and a peace that this world cannot offer. Lord, help them to put their faith in him, we do pray. Amen.